0: Hello world. Welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, May 10th, 2018, the Iran Deal Undone edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham in England. I'm joined as usual by my co-host, Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and
1: Editor of news and commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? Well, Sun's shining, birds are singing, and the world's going to hell. So that's a heck of a combination for today.
0: It is. It is the second consecutive show in which we've been able to remark upon the sunny weather during the intros. Right. I think that, that may be like next to horses turning and eating one another in the signs exactly. of like cosmic disturbance and unusualness. Um, and on the subject of apocalyptic <laughs> themes, uh, our topic today, um, after campaigning against it, Publicly calling it the worst deal ever and clashing with his most senior advisors through the first year of his presidency, President Trump has finally gone and done it, announced that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, to give it its full name, was an international agreement entered into by the US, Iran, Russia, China, France, the UK and Germany in 2015 after many years of painstaking negotiation. Its essential core was that Iran would cease to pursue development of nuclear weapons, not that they altogether admitted they had been (laughs) doing that, but they would stop doing that thing they had not been doing, and submit to an unprecedented regime of intrusive inspections to ensure that it did so. In exchange, um, an array of biting international sanctions designed to force that concession would be lifted. Um, Two things, I guess, to put on the table uh, uh, before we we get talking uh, between ourselves about this, first of all that the deal was very controversial when the Obama administration signed up to it. Um, It wasn't classified as a treaty because it would not have been possible to get the support in the U.S. Senate to pass it as such. It was fiercely opposed, not just by Republicans, but also by an array of hawkish critics in the U.S. foreign policy community. Every Republican running for president in 2016 said that they would junk it. And internationally, two of the U.S.'s closest traditional allies in the Middle East, Israel and Saudi Arabia, have been noisily hostile from the start. Um, The reasons for their opposition have been uh, many and varied, but the two key ones to note are, one, that it didn't do enough to ensure that Iran would be blocked from pursuing the bomb in the long term, and two, that it took the pressure off Iran while failing to address other forms of Iranian bad behavior, for want of a less infantilizing term, such as stoking militancy and conflict within other states in the region, and pursuing advanced missile technology. But by the time President Trump was actually in office, many of the people who had opposed doing the deal in the first place nevertheless felt that it would be better to stick with it, at least for the time being, because pulling out now would make the United States look like a faithless deal-breaker and because it's not super clear uh, what the follow-up plan is to make things immediately better having left it. But in recent weeks, Donald Trump, uh, who has been hung up on the importance of keeping this promise quite publicly for some time, um, has replaced his Secretary of State and his National Security Advisor, uh, getting rid of people who had incurred his anger by trying to prevent him from taking this course, Rex Tillerson and H.R. McMaster, with more hard-line figures, Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, who have been long-time hawks on this issue. So now he's finally got his way. The question on observers' minds is... Where does this lead? Is it a containable lashing out by a president determined to tear down his predecessor's legacy? Or is it the beginning of a path that leads eventually to war? Big stuff. And uh, fortunately, in order to help us talk out some of this big stuff, we have a guest. Nicholas Wheeler, Nick to his friends. We seem to have a lot of Nicks uh, in, our, in our guest rotation for this show. You'll remember uh, Nick LeMay-Ebert recently. Uh, but today we have Nick Wheeler, who is a professor of international relations at the PULSIS department, director of the Institute for Conflict, Cooperation and Security, and the author of Trusting Enemies, a new book just out with Oxford University Press. Uh, the Iran deal, whether it could be done and whether it would last, uh, has been a topic of close attention for him for some time. So Nick, man of many titles, knower of many things about Iran. Hello and welcome. Thank you for being with us.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here today,
0: Adam. Okay. Uh, That was a a longer than usual intro, but I thought it was appropriate because we want to get everyone up to a shared baseline of what exactly we're we're talking about here. So Donald Trump, after uh, much... um, declaiming and spinning of wheels and public uh, shape-throwing over the course of the last year has finally done this. He's announced that the US is no longer going to be abiding by the terms of this deal. What's going to happen in the
2: immediate term now as a consequence of that? Um, Well, um, my opening take on this is that I mean, first of all, it's worth remembering, as you said, that this is a multilateral nuclear agreement between Iran and the E3 plus 3, as it's formally known, uh, within the negotiating process. And what's abundantly clear is that everyone else in the deal, apart from the United States, is very keen to hold on to it. I think there's considerable evidence that the Russians and the Chinese have been very supportive of the deal. They don't want to see the deal jeopardised. They have exactly the concern that the deal was meant to address, which is about uh, an Iranian nuclear breakout. And as we've seen very clearly in recent days, the European states have come out very clearly, the French, the British uh, and the Germans, saying that they're very keen to hold on to the deal. So within the transatlantic relationship already, we've got the potential uh, opening up of of a major fissure. Now, the question will be, how far can the European states that are committed to this deal uh, maintain it in any realistic way uh, that the Iranians will feel that they are incentivized to keep their part of the deal? Mm. And that, I think, is a really difficult question to answer. But it's going to come down to how far European companies can in any way meaningfully uh, continue to trade with Iran and to operate the sanctions relief provisions, which are absolutely critical to the Iranian buy into this deal, uh, in the context of US enormous US pressure to do otherwise,
0: because yeah, it was always part of this setup, this deal set up that if it were to be demonstrably the case that Iran was not abiding by the promises it had committed to, the sanctions that had been really biting on Iran to force them to the table in the first place would, in the parlance of the deal, snap back, that that Iran would become subject once again to the kind of economic pressure that it had escaped by virtue of entering into the deal. The problem we have now is that the United States is going to be attempting to the maximum possible degree to snap back sanctions on Iran. But most – but indeed all the other parties to the deal don't agree that Iran has actually violated anything in it. They believe that Iran has actually, whether the deal's a good or a bad deal, been doing everything that it promised to do. So um, you have the U.S. snapping sanctions back and everybody else – well, their position is unclear as to whether or not they're going to go along with that, whether they're going to try and circumvent that, to what extent it's possible for the United States to to enforce a sanctions regime based on its own unilateral judgment about about Iranian blame here.
2: Yeah, and I think it's worth remembering that the snapback provisions of the deal are fundamentally predicated on the United Nations Security Council resolution. Mm -hmm. I mean, there has to be the... I mean, that is all part of the process, and you're not going to get agreement in the Security Council, I think even without bringing vetoes into the story, you're not going to get nine states on the council willing to adopt a snapback resolution. So if sanctions are to be reimposed, they're going to be reimposed unilaterally by the United States. And that raises the question of whether the uh, architects of uh, breaking this deal really believe that they're going to be in a position to impose the kind of pressures that they seem to believe they can impose to get a better deal. Because they're not, they're not saying at the moment that they don't want a deal. They're just saying this is an, app, an appalling deal and they can get a better deal. But it's just not clear how they think they're going to get a better deal. Because how can they mobilize the kind of pressure that they would need to, to get a better deal when there is such opposition. And when, I mean, it's worth remembering, as Scott knows very well, because we've talked about this many times over the years uh, and written about it, the, there's been, there was a belief in the Bush administration very strongly that if only the pressure could be escalated, we would get a better deal. And in the end, the Obama administration backed away from that position, recognising that the Iranians were not going to cave in in the way that the Bush people had believed. Yeah because ultimately this was a fundamental issue of national security to them, that they uh, retain, and I think it's very important we're careful with our language here, that they retain an indigenous nuclear fuel cycle. This has been the fundamental thing. So uh, to have a latent nuclear weapons capability in the sense that there is the potential to develop nuclear weapons by breaking out of uh, the existing constraints uh, and so on. But, but but that was a fundamental issue for the Iranians throughout the story from 2003 to the present day, has been to maintain a highly developed indigenous nuclear fuel cycle capability. And I mean, to, to be clear, you know, in
0: general regulation and international law and agreements, as, as they pertain to... Uh, nuclear proliferation, the, national, the, the non-proliferation treaty of, of the late 1960s being right. the most important plank of all that, it is uncontroversially accepted, at least officially, that every country is entitled to pursue the peaceful development of civilian nuclear technology. Right. The reason why this is such a sensitive case, I guess, is that first of all, no one believes that the only reason Iran is pursuing nuclear technology is for that reason. And secondly, because the I- Iranians have had for so long an extremely heightened antagonistic relationship with the United States since the revolution of 1979. So the most powerful country in the international system regards them as kind of exceptional in some way that, uh, you know, not only um, are they liars, but also if they were to get these weapons, they would be completely unacceptable as a nuclear power in a way that perhaps others would not be. There's something different about Iran that means they're, they've got to be subjected to a whole different set of rules that hold them to a tighter set of restrictions and a higher standard.
1: And add the Israel factor as well. Well, tell us
0: about the Israel factor.
1: Well, I'll, I'll let Nick answer. i just simply say that you've simply said that since '79 we know the U.S. and Iran are antagonistic. But on top of that, as opposed to, say, a Pakistan having nuclear weapons or an India having nuclear weapons or even North Korea, the Iran versus Israel dynamic and the idea that these Iranian nuclear weapons would be used against Israel, which has its own – well, we're not supposed to say it Mm – which has its own stash of undeclared nuclear weapons, that simply heightens the the stakes in this game.
0: Right. And it it certainly didn't help that – Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, former Iranian president, one of the political figures most closely associated with uh, uh, the Iranian run at developing nuclear technology, was prone to saying things in public like that it would be better if Israel... So the precise language is debated, but uh, uh, a, neutra- a neutral translation <laughs> would be that it would be better if Israel didn't exist, Fair enough. Um, which uh, uh, you know, is not the kind of thing that puts mind, minds at rest uh, in light of all the historical uh, connotations to,
2: uh, of anti-Semitic sentiment combined with violence. Anyway, it, Nick. It, Well, in terms of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, I think the point you make is, is absolutely critical. Um, the Article 4 Entitlement is for states to develop civil nuclear facilities, subject to International Atomic Energy Agency safeguards. But that Article 4 entitlement is only there for signatures to the treaty as long as they're in compliance with Article 2. And Article 2 is the, um, is, is the, is, is the article in the treaty that prohibits the development, uh, testing, manufacture of nuclear weapons, and so on. So... The international community's position since two thousand and three has been the question about whether Iraq is in compliance with Article Two. Iran, and, uh, sorry, has <laughs> been whether Iran is in compliance. You uh, have you have me getting uh, <laughs> not nostalgic for the early indeed. years of the last decade. Well, indeed. I mean, the Israeli, we have all been here before. I do get that feeling. Indeed. But, but, yes. Well, Israel attacked, of course, Iraq. In 1981, because they didn't believe they were in compliance with Article 2 Mm -hmm. of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And they took the law into their own hands by attacking the aussie nuclear reactor, which they believed was about to become operational. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we actually do have (laughs) my my, my slip there. It actually has a historical context to it. But the belief has been very much that Iran – the the question, sorry, has been about whether Iran is in compliance with Article 2 – and hence entitled to the uh, the rights under Article 4. And, th- and that's been the debate. And, 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 the, and the Security Council, of course, adopted a series of Security Council resolutions under Chapter 7 that found the Iranian nuclear program to be a threat to international peace and security.
0: Mm-hmm
2: under Chapter 7 of the Charter. And so the Article 4 entitlement was being, in a sense, superseded by the claim that this was a threat to international peace and security. So it's
0: not purely... I mean, the United States is foremost foremost among those countries that regards Iran as... uh... A bunch of liars and a threat to international peace and security, but they are not alone in having in having expressed the view on the record that Iran has not been honest about its intentions with regard to nuclear weapons, and that the international community should put their feet to the fire unless and until more security can be can be faith can be felt about about what they're
2: doing. Yeah, and I, I mean Scott may have a slightly different take on this, or might want to put another. Mm. Approach. I think that's right. I mean, how far the, I mean, the, the real question, if we go back in the historical record, and I've done some work on this, uh, go back to the beginnings of the Iran nuclear file in the period sort of 2003, 2006, that the real debate is how far did it really need to go to the Security Council? I mean, could it have not been resolved through the International Atomic Energy Agency, Board of Governors? mechanisms exist within the IEA. They've been used in a number of other cases, South Korea uh, and others that we can talk about where these mechanisms have come into play to resolve compliance issues mm. without it going to the Security Council. It was a major escalation of the disputes. Uh, that the, I mean, the agency certainly wasn't prepared to give Iran a clean bill of health. There were outstanding concerns about what kind of activities had been taking place prior in particular to 2003. There were concerns about uh, uh, centrifuges and so on and evidence that there had been uh, weaponization activity and so forth. And those concerns needed to be addressed. But putting the issue in the Security Council took it to another level. And there is no doubt that U.S., uh, as you were saying, Adam, the U.S. belief uh, that ultimately any centrifuges spinning in Iran was a fundamental threat to U.S. security in the long term. Mm-hmm. The neoconservative belief that drove the uh, preventive war against Iraq in 2003, that belief that ultimately uh, the, the, these, these weapons could not ever fall into mm-hmm. Iranian hands, could not ever be held, developed by the Iranians, and hence the need to stop Iran having an indigenous fuel cycle capability mm. that was driven by a profound ideological antipathy to the Islamic Republic
0: right so like this so this like this unusual ad hoc deal around Iran's nuclear program stems from an unusual ad hoc security council process designed to put pressure on Iran, which comes from the fact that Iran is exceptional in American eyes. It's not like South Korea or right. insert random country here when it comes to being in violation of some technical rules here or there with the IAEA. It's, like it's, a, it's a much bigger deal. And other countries in turn, based on the correct supposition that the united states is liable to do something more extreme in response to a perceived iranian nuclear program is open to to handling iranian nuclear ambitions in a in a different way
2: yeah i think there's there's no question that having seen the united states go outside the security council with iraq in 2003 circumvent the Russian and Chinese vetoes to, to launch a preventive war, as I would call it, against Iraq, having seen the Western powers circumvent the Security Council in 1999 over the Kosovo intervention. The Russians and the Chinese were determined that there shouldn't be still further unilateralism in relation to Iran. And so keeping the issue in the Security Council, being open to the idea of some limited coercive pressure, which gradually ramped up as the decade went on, Um, I think that's right. They they were very, very concerned that the UN, the authority of the UN Security Council should not be still further undermined. And of course, this is exactly where we're now ending up again, because potentially the US looks like it's going to try and impose a whole series of sanctions without going through the snapback provisions that are in the agreement in terms of the council, and once again, demonstrating um, a... uh, Rejection of the multilateral approach to U.S. security, and there we have the continuity with the Bush period, if you want, in certainly the first Bush administration, where there was this uh, antipathy to international institutions constraining American power and the need to kind of express American power through through unilateral action. Um, and and I think the 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 other sort of problem in all this is that in terms of the U.S. Iranian interactions. There was the beginnings under uh, the the second Obama administration of the development of a new relationship, and I think, you know, there were really encouraging signs. I argue, you know, in my new book that that in part, the two thousand and fifteen deal is about the development of empathy and detrust on the part of some of the key U.S. and Iranian decision makers, particularly Secretary of State John Kerry and uh, Foreign Minister. Iranian Foreign Minister Javid uh, Zarif, and that their relationship was very important to the deal. Um, And what we're seeing now, of course, is uh, the breaking down of any of those kind of relationships. There's no kind... We're moving back into a situation where, in the 2003 period, when the Iranians were feeling much more weakened after the Americans intervened in Iraq, the Iranians put out feelers uh, for a better relationship with the United States... And it And you know the Americans uh, that were looking at that bush cheney uh, they they rejected any of those kind of outreaches and it 's reported that in the in some of the discussions you know it was said we do not speak to evil that the, the top level of the Bush administration in two thousand and three, when they were looking at this this reaching out from the Iranians, the so called two thousand and three uh, facts that came in through the Swiss, where the Iranians were talking about a whole grand bargain. This was rejected by the Americans and uh, people that were uh, uh, close to that discussion say that the American response was, we do not speak to evil. Mm -hmm. So we're moving back into that kind of world, particularly with someone like Bolton as the National Security Advisor. He was very much part of that thinking in 2003 and now he's driving American policy, uh, I think, in a significant way uh, that's very concerning.
1: Yeah, I... um... (laughs) I think Nick hit hit it, by the way, at the start in terms of the key place now of Europe and what happens next. But before we do that, I want to ask a little bit about what has just happened Um, and pick you up, especially Nick's argument around the American motives, including that of John Bolton, the new national security advisor. Look, Iran was complying with the deal. Uh, It wasn't just the United States that had concerns. In some ways, it was the French that were even harder line in the run-up to the deal about being worried that Iran had a breakout capability and containing it. What's clear is, is that the deal has removed any question of Iran pursuing that breakout capability. They've been inspected 11 times by the IAEA. They've shipped out almost all their uranium. They are not developing new centrifuges. Secondly, I'm not convinced, this is where I differ a bit with Nick, that the administration, the Trump administration, wants a new deal. I think some of the advisors that were pushed out, like H.R. McMaster, who was replaced by John Bolton, I think Secretary of State Tillerson and the State Department personnel were talking about renegotiating some of the terms of the deal and, importantly, getting a separate deal on Iran's ballistic missiles. Mm -hmm. But Bolton, who's in now, and Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, let's just put cards on table. Because, by the way, Donald Trump's motivation— has nothing to do with geopolitics. Donald Trump's motivation has nothing to do with an assessment of the military situation. Donald Trump's motivation is he hates anything that Barack Obama has done. Mm-hmm. Point blank, right? And he made a campaign promise, so he might as well do it. That's the end of where Trump is. The important folks, sorry, are the advisors who want regime change. Mm-hmm. And I'm convinced mm-hmm. that what the strategy is now. When we refer to all the sanctions, the extent of the sanctions, which are far greater than we expected to be put in place on Monday, is they want to break Iran.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, They want to break it in terms of its currency. They want to break it in terms of its investment, its production, et cetera. So the question is, is that what we're talking about here, that the U.S. is pursuing a regime change which no one else, apart from possibly Mm -hmm. Israel and Saudi Arabia and the UAE, or in favor of as a working strategy at this well, point.
0: Well, I mean, it does feel like, the, like a couple of things have been become confused here, and I'm not, um, I think it would be extending more good faith than they deserve to say that the Trump administration is actually confused about them, but I think they're trading on confusion between them. One is the question of whether or not the deal is working in the sense that Iran is abiding by the things that it promised to do. Now, in some forums and circumstances, when really pressed on it, the senior officials in the Bush administration will concede that the Iranians are not technically in violation of the deal. However, in Collaboration with Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel. They've been throwing out a whole bunch of facts about Iranian nuclear activities, current and historical. Um, and bringing in ideas of the spirit of the deal, which, of course, is when you always know people are in dire straits in terms of, uh, in terms of any legal argument uh, once they start invoking that. To try and uh, gin up as much of an impression as they can that in some way Iran is not actually living up to its promises. So the deal needs to be junked because Iran's breaking it and the United States is not going to be a mug. Then secondarily, there's the question of whether or not it was a good idea to do the deal in the first place because there are a variety of things the deal does not address that the United States would very much like to see addressed mm. and it is a bad idea they would say to make any concessions of any kind on any issue to Iran unless you can get them to... Uh, to. to address those other concerns. The problem is that once you get these critics to specify what those concerns are, they start to sound like the totality of Iranian Mm. foreign policy, which is to say that Iran is... Intervening in defense of what it considers to be its interests in a variety of regional conflicts. Mm -hmm. Iran is pursuing weaponry of a kind that plenty of other countries have uh, in order to be able to defend itself against the perfectly reasonable, they would say, uh, prospect of military attack Mm -hmm. from the United States and its ally in the region, Israel. Um, And so, you know, the reason why the deal only contains the The limited number of things that it contains was because it was assumed to be impossible to get Iran to give up. Everything that it that it considers to be its foreign policy, but what you might be able to do is take the particularly bad, terrifying thing that is Iran getting nuclear weapons come to an arrangement that closes off that, and then you go back to what is inevitable and unavoidable, which is a regional, uh, a regional uh, rivalry with Iran, where it tries to do all the kinds of things that it 's that it's never going to not try
1: and do. Let me pick up on that and then kick it back to Nick to because of his work on trust and all that and that. And think about regime change, and that is, when the Americans, particularly under this administration, said Iran is violating the spirit of the nuclear deal, they are referring exactly to those regional issues that you're talking about, which is Iran versus Saudi Arabia, Iran's support of Hezbollah, not only in Lebanon, but in the Syrian conflict, Iran's alliance with the Assad regime in Syria, which has been so devastating, counterproductive. So in a way that spirit of the nuclear deal really did have a substantive dimension which is it shifted the goalpost which is we're now going to judge Iran not on their compliance with the nuclear deal we're going to judge them on mm. Iran versus Saudi on Syria on Lebanon on the entire middle east
0: which is like a dark flip side in some ways of like if you if you got the most over optimistic overselling obama democrat to tell you why this deal is good they might have said well because once it's done it will open up the door to a new era of comity in which iran will gradually stop doing all the things that we've been unhappy about them doing Mm. start behaving more like a normal country we can do business with and in the fullness of time we can have a much more productive relationship and a much more peaceable region whereas a more like hard-nosed realistic take would have said look many of these issues are going to be very very hard to resolve if they are resolved at all but the one thing we know for a fact is going to make the situation way, 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 way worse is Iran yeah. having nuclear weapons. So if we can find a way to block that off, then that means that all of these other problems we have with Iran, bad as they are, at least uh, have the worst-case scenario diminished somewhat. Exactly. I,
2: and I think, I think you can put a – I mean, I think I'd put a slightly more hopeful spin on it. I mean, Trita Parsi wrote a book about a year ago now called um, Losing the Enemy, which is – you know. A terrific book about the whole nuclear uh, question with Iran and the wider relationship going right back to the beginning of the, the nuclear debates in the early 2000s building on his earlier book uh, A Single Roll of the Dice which is also a terrific book and you know th- at the end of that book there's there's a definite sort of expectation that we've that we're moving into a different kind of relationship, although clearly caveats to it and so on but you know when you think about when he wrote that book and then the months in production and so on i mean how much the world has changed since then i mean i mean there was a sense at the end of the you know when the deal was signed in 2015 that that this would be the beginnings of a new of a new kind of relationship that the cooperation that had manifested itself and i would say the trust that had developed interpersonally between these people could spill over into the wider relationship. You know, Zarif has talked a lot, uh, you know, in language that I think is quite reminiscent of the Soviet new thinking under Gorbachev, of common security, the importance of avoiding zero-sum competitions and so on. Now, not everyone in the Iranian establishment, of course, shares that view, and we know that's a really complex issue. But one thing's for sure, that if you want to... Accentuate the regional rivalry. If you want to drive these this relationship even deeper into a zero sum mindset, if you want to escalate the tensions and conflict and indeed the violence, then then acting in the way in which the Trump people are talking about the relationship is guaranteed to bring that about even more than it already is. And what we really what we really were hoping for, I think. Is is a situation where the regional r- rivalry and conflict could have been transformed into a different kind of relationship, where there was the beginnings of some kind of partnership, and that that's lost. That's really lost in a big way. and And I think Scott's point about regime change is it is. I'm not saying I disagree with that. I guess it's. I guess what I, I guess the the rhetorical position seems to be that they want a new deal, but but really what one fears is that they have no intention of really seeking any kind of deal that, because they want regime change. Well, and and that, would be a, that would be a position that is kind of consistent with the position that people like Bolton held uh, in the first Bush administration. And it would be consistent with the view that ultimately no, any centrifuges spinning in Iran will eventually lead to a nuclear-armed Iran, which is what I was saying at the beginning. And the fear is that if you don't deal with the problem now, it'll be far, far greater in, in the years to come. So so the preventive war logic seems to – the regime change and preventive war, which is the ultimate machinery for achieving that, that seems to be locked in now in a way which is very concerning.
1: Let me uh, work with that in terms of a pox on both their houses, having not been a fan of the Trump approach. In 2015, the idea with which I agree from the start was is if you have – that the nuclear issue is a pawn in a much bigger – Game of chess. It's not the end in itself. But if you take the pawn off the board, you can deal with the game. And here is where the Obama administration, I have no sympathy for what they then do over the next two years. Because Iran is up to its neck. And indeed, within months of the agreement, it ramps up with the Russians in terms of support of the Assad regime, which is this extremely deadly twist in that conflict. Iran is playing pressure politics elsewhere. Meanwhile, the Saudis have gone into Yemen and are wreaking hell there in that civil war. And the Obama administration did absolutely nothing, absolutely nothing between 2015 and 2017 in dealing with those issues. It got led by the nose on Syria. It did not put pressure on Saudi Arabia. So that opportunity to deal with those issues that the agreement puts out, that Nick expressed, they didn't do it. They bungled it. And that opens the door for the Trump administration now to say, well, we're going to blame Iran for everything in the region and rip up the deal. I don't think the Trump administration has a clue what it wants to do in Syria on the national level. I don't think it has a clue what it wants to do with Lebanon. certainly doesn't have a clue on what it wants to do with Israel and Palestine. But it will now use Iran as the excuse Mm. for why everything's going wrong across the region and at the same time try to have this magical solution that if only the Ayatollahs were gone, it will all be uh, sweetness Mm -hmm. and light. Mm.
0: Yeah. And I mean, you know, there is a, I mean, it's a fairly tried and tested technique by which people who basically embrace uh, war and conflict get there while maintaining the appearance of being reasonable people, which is by saying that they would dearly love to negotiate and do a deal. And, uh, you know, all they want with all of their hearts is a negotiated solution. But the Only terms they are prepared to accept in that negotiated solution are things that they stone cold know are completely unacceptable because they amount to something that sounds a lot like the comprehensive unilateral surrender across all issues of the people with whom they're dealing. So, like, when you ask John Bolton, you know do you want war with Iran, he could probably say and pass a you know, lie detector test saying it, no, of course I don't want uh, a war with Iran. War is hell. Uh, what I want is a negotiated solution that's um, you know, tougher mm-hmm. and uh, uh, covers all the issues that are of concern to the United States and applies our power in a way that's more effective to get results. And at the end of that, I will achieve the following things. Mm-hmm. You know, Iran will completely dismantle its entire nuclear program, civilian and, uh, and military, Iran will give up all pursuit of missile technology now and forever. Iran will cease to intervene in any of the region's conflicts um, and oh by the way it will probably also revolutionize its domestic system of government because you know the way, that it, the way that that is structured is so inherently flawed and evil that it inevitably projects itself outward in the form of bad international behavior so once Iran comes to the table and is reasonable and like, agrees to all of that with me in exchange for precisely zero concessions because of course America's right about everything so why would it make any concessions? Then we can have the peaceful uh, agreement we should have had all along if, Barama, if Barack Obama wasn't such a cowardly, spineless um, mm. uh, seller out of the national interest. Now, like, And OK, that's fine. We can, we can all do that dance if we want to because everyone needs verbal cover to not say, like, I am I'm a belligerent nationalist with a bottomless appetite for other people's sacrifice and war. Um, but at the end of the day, what he's basically saying is surrender mm. completely to us. Or else face the consequences mm. and that 's um, you know that 's that's, that's a mindset that John Bolton, I would say has been the very personification of for upwards of twenty years in in washington d c foreign mm. policy circles and that 's why everybody 's heart sank when mm. he was given a job right at the heart of the administration because they know that like a president who does not who is not known either for his uh, deep knowledge of context or for his capacity for like analytical thinking is liable to be led to believe by such a person that he is being entirely reasonable in, uh, in pursuing a course that John Bolton knows full well is in fact likely to lead only to the complete breakdown of all diplomacy and, mm. and, and quite serious conflict,
2: possibly war. Yeah, I, I think that, yeah.
1: Uh, Let me advance this with a question to, to Nick. Which gets now to where what happens next, which is the Europe question, which is I I fully agree that this is the key issue because the Iranians have said, All right, for now we'll stay in the deal if other nations are in. And they don't just mean politically, they mean economically, which is they want the trade, the investment opportunities, they want the financial sector open back up again. But we're in a position where European companies and firms and thus their governments face the threat from the United States that any transaction with the Iranians, if those companies have an American dimension to them, can be punished by billions of dollars in fines. So it strikes me the choice is either Europe capitulates to the Americans, cuts off its own ties with Iran, and thus the deal is gone, Hmm. or Europe has to defy the Americans, Hmm. including deals with the oil and gas sector in Iran, deals with, for example, the automotive sector, deals with the aviation sector. If that's the case, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if that's the case, which way do you think Europe goes? Because that is a huge decision, bigger than any I can think of in recent history.
0: Oh, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what I think before we pass the neck. Mm-hmm. I think there is absolutely no chance that the Europeans are going are to do that because the, the, the lift is so big. I mean, for one thing... The companies, the private companies in question, will have such a strong incentive to not want to get on the wrong side of the United States on this thing, even if notionally their own European governments are going to compensate them, that the European governments would have to decide that it was such a priority to them to make a point that they were not going to be led by the United States on this, that they were going to... Like, Go into their own private sector and try and prop up their companies almost against their will to continue to do business they didn't want to do with Iran at financial cost and diplomatic cost of themselves, um, simply to send the message that they were dissatisfied with the United States, even knowing that that would also bring down... Uh, hopefully metaphorical fire and fury in this case from the American administration and they would know that they were probably not actually going to save the Iran Iran deal at the end of the day Uh, the best they could possibly hope to achieve is a degree of Iranian forbearance sufficient to take advantage of having successfully divided the United States from its allies while Russia stands at the sidelines uh, yucking it up and laughing about how this great strategic objective has been achieved without them having to do anything so I think the Europeans will be incredibly incredibly pissed off that the Americans have done this, and they will really wish that there was something effective they could do to, um, to, to uh, you know, stop it from having the consequences likely to have. But I don't, think, I don't think they're likely to actually, when it really comes down to the calculus of cost and benefit, do very much.
2: I mean, that seems very persuasive. I mean, I guess, does it depend how much the Americans are willing to put on these secondary sanctions? I mean, how much they're willing to actually target companies that continue to operate... If the United States was starting to put secondary sanctions on European companies that were operating, particularly in the oil and gas area, which I think is a really key one, then um, that would be a major transatlantic crisis if the Europeans then persisted. But if the mm. Europeans back down at that point, that's going to leave the Europeans looking extremely weak and it's going to be a hell of a public relations challenge for European governments. So It's going to be be absolutely mm -hmm. terrible, and they're going to hate it, but they're ultimately probably going to just have to suck it up. But in some ways, if you know that's coming, if you know the secondary sanctions are coming down the tube, then are you even going to start this? I mean, this is the intriguing question, right? Because at the moment, the Europeans are saying, we want to try and hold on to the deal, but are they going to discover over the next few days and weeks that the consequences of going down this road are actually so great, as Adam was saying, that actually they can't afford to even begin the process. And then the really interesting question is, mm-hmm. what happened to the debate inside Iran? Let me
1: give you a test. Because
2: the Iranians have floated. I mean, mm-hmm. Hamlet's already floated the talk about restarting the nuclear program. There's already mm-hmm. been voices like that. But they've also talked about leaving the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which at a time when the NPT is in, in a very, very difficult place... Mm-hmm in terms of the cleavage between the nuclear weapon states and the non-nuclear weapon states with the Global Ban Treaty where for the first time ever 120 states have come out or so and said we don't accept the legitimacy of nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, in the present, we're not talking about a transitional set of arrangements as the NPT, but don't. this is a prohibition treaty of nuclear weapons. We invite everyone to sign this treaty and move us towards zero. And of course the nuclear armed states have stayed out of it. So at the moment. So and very unlikely that any of the nine nuclear armed states are going to get go into this process. Really very hard to imagine that. So what would the what would be the consequences for the Nuclear Non Proliferation Treaty if the Iranians were actually to announce they were withdrawing? Of course, that's what happened in two thousand and three with North Korea. They withdrew from the treaty. Three years later they were nuclear they tested a nuclear weapon.
1: Let me give you a test case then.
2: So yeah. I think that's a very that's a really yeah. well,
1: uh, Let me give you a test case then to watch, prefacing it, by the way, that, Adam, you seem to be agreeing with the supreme leader of Iran, which is because President Rouhani comes out anticipating the withdrawal, says, we're not going to leave, and he's clearly pointing to Europe. We want to work with him. Ayatollah Khomeini comes up yesterday and says, we want guarantees from the Europeans. Effectively, we don't trust them. Right on that. The test case is, I don't know if you all know, Total, which is the French energy giant, last Mm -hmm. July signed a memorandum to put in $4.9 billion, uh, or the equivalent in euros, into the world's largest gas project, which is the South Pars field in Iran. Now, they have suspended anything more than about $90 million of investment because they were waiting to see what the decision was from the Americans. Okay, so the decision has come down. Mm -hmm. So now Total is basically in a position where they either have to defy the Americans and pursue what was going to be a very lucrative contract if Mm -hmm. they'd gone ahead with it, Or they walk out of the contract, the Iranians have said that we're going to hand it to the Chinese, hoping the Chinese will pick up the slack. But I think you're right. I think the immediate consequence is is if that total agreement doesn't go ahead, that'll be the marker for the supreme leader to say, that's it. We're effectively out of the deal. We're resuming nuclear program, Mm -hmm. which means it'll take probably weeks and maybe even months of haggling over this. But that would be one of the markers in terms of – because Iran has to have this kind of economic survive, uh, investment
2: possibly for its survival at this mm-hmm. point. Well, what do you think, are, Scott, are the consequences or, or, or what, what, what form do you think restarting the nuclear program would take? I mean I guess it could take a variety of different forms could take a much more symbolic form where they could just increase the levels of centrifuges slow down the retirement of the of the old centrifuges and so on um, or it could lead to a rapid increase in the advanced centrifuge development program which is currently not allowed to take place until the sunset provisions come in it could lead to them doing work on arac the At the moment, they're committed, of course, they're rebuilding the fuel core for the Arak heavy water reactor, which is a plutonium route to the bomb, potentially a much quicker route to the bomb for them. Uh, But the the deal commits them once the new fuel core is developed, as I understand it, to then send out all of the spent fuel outside of the the country. And that's all under verification and very tight controls by the International Atomic Energy Agency. What kind of nuclear responses do you think that the supreme leader would be looking to make in this context
1: well i think the markers are there i mean i think they stop short of saying we have a nuclear weapons capability because that brings the wrath down upon them from the international community but before going and right now
0: they have enormous potential to look like the wrong
1: party in in this whole transaction but at the same time Mm. that they try to maintain that opening we're the wrong party work with us The Supreme Leader's markers are not only that we can restart the enrichment of 20% enriched uranium,
2: Mm.
1: which Iran has been able to do since 2010. Mm. The marker before the deal was made is, look, we can have these advanced centrifuges, including what's called the IR-8 centrifuge. Mm. We can develop these centrifuges in our new facility at Fordu, the underground facility. Now, under the provisions of the deal, FORDU was to be converted into a nuclear technology and science center. So it was to be taken off of the grid in terms of uh, nuclear production, enrichment. And, of course, they slowed down the development of the centrifuges. So, Nick, I suspect what you see is, is they say, not only are we going to resume the program, but we are going to develop the IRH centrifuges. And they may say... We are now going to reverse the decision on Fordu, which means they have two enrichment plants in operation, Mm. Uh, the older one at Natanz and the newer one at Fordu. That would be the marker I'd I'd be looking for.
2: You wouldn't expect them to leave the NPT. You think that's too dramatic? I
1: think it's too dramatic because as long as – Iran's problem is this, if we're gaming this out, and that is if the Europeans cannot bail Iran out economically, who are they going to turn to? They need to have links with countries like in India – With uh, China, with Russia, but interestingly enough, one of their biggest customers for oil is South Korea. Hmm. So it can't be that they can pull themselves into a shell of the axis of resistance. So for that reason, I think coming out of the NTP directly, North Korea could do that ironically because it was already isolated. Hmm. So you can do that. Iran has never wanted to be in a position of isolation which means I think it checks them from coming all the way out of NPT immediately.
0: Nick, you mentioned North Korea earlier, and, we, and we've name-checked it again there. Um, and there is, a, there is a superficial way in which we could say that like, the strategy of the Trump administration looks like it's similar in both cases, which is to say that you... Uh, you say a bunch of pyrotechnic belligerent stuff in public, you, th- you make a lot of moves that look like you are uh, not to be messed with, you mean business, uh, your previous, your predecessor's efforts at diplomacy are not to your taste. And essentially, you are capable of doing something really, really big and frightening and extreme. So this long standing antagonist had better make some massive concessions fast or else the or else the table's gonna get tipped over. So in the case of North Korea right now, we have what is I would imagine in the administration's own portrayal an enormous success. By virtue of putting on this huge performance of the possibility of doing of doing something extreme, the administration has got the, uh, the North Koreans to come to the table, make a bunch of peaceable noises, and show themselves open to negotiation about the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Now, they were always willing to have a meeting with the United States. Donald Trump doesn't seem to know that. Uh, but let's park that for a moment and just say it looks like a breakthrough uh, to open negotiations has possibly been achieved. So possibly, you could say, by bringing things to this similar kind of precipice of possible catastrophe, uh, concessions to new negotiations might be opened up with Iran. The problem is that, um, you know, all of the pressure that was put on Iran before was put on it to the end of getting it to come to the table, where everybody in the international community collaborated in continuing to pressure them with the objective of achieving some kind of obtainable, satisfactory, good enough agreement. Which is, according to everybody Except the Trump administration What they got and what was now put in place The United States is not going To get anything even close To what the Iran deal contained Out of North Korea In any negotiations that follow Like the kind of like t- To get an equivalent thing You need North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons To agree to a massive Intrusive inspections regime um, And uh, that's just clearly, 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 clearly not going to happen. So you've junked the best po- something that's better than the best possible scenario in the Korean case in the Iranian case based on the theory that something better is obtainable. Whereas the likelihood would presumably be then that like, nothing better will be obtained in the Iranian case because it was the best possible – and the supposed success in Korea has been to open up negotiations that can presumably only fail if, unless the Trump administration is prepared to do a worse deal than the one they've just said is so terrible and unacceptable that they can barely even stand to look at it uh, in, in, in the Iranian case. So how do we, like, how do we knit together um, if you are trying to salvage the Trump administration's foreign policy, the fact that they're supposed to be about to go and try and negotiate this thing when they've ruled out all the, all the likely possible realistic things they could, they could settle for.
2: Also, I think you know a number of people have said this in, in, in the last few day, a couple of days. But if you were Kim Jong-un, why would you trust the United States? Here's the United States coming to you and saying, we want you to get rid of nuclear weapons, completely denuclearize, We're going to offer you all this sanctions relief and these security guarantees. And then you can give up your nuclear weapons, and it can be Libya 2003. And the North Koreans are going to say, well, first of all, they're going to say, well, hang on a sec, you just made a deal of the same kind with the Iranians. Well, you didn't make the deal, but you're now breaking the deal your predecessor made. So what trust can we place in promises that the United States makes? And also, the North Koreans are on record of saying... That they thought Gaddafi's decision to disarm in 2003 was a catastrophic failure that the, on his part because eight years later he was removed from power. And the North Koreans have even gone so far as to say that they think the West planned it all along. <laughs>
0: And John yeah. and John Bolton has characterized in public the outcome that they would like from the Korean situation as the Libya yeah. option, which again fits uh, I, I fits pretty neatly with my analysis that John Bolton is essentially, uh, you know, uh, a kind of diplomatic variant on a troll, like the, the, <laughs> that he is he is attempting to. He's playing the character of a, an engaged diplomat uh, for public purposes, but only up to the point that someone who was completely bereft of context could not see through immediately to realize this is someone who has bad faith running through him like a stick of Blackfoot well, rock. But this when is he, your point. Is because he wants to put the idea in
2: these people's heads that they should never do a deal in a million years with him. or Unless generation. it's Libya 2003, because he knows, as you say that Kim will never accept something like Libya 2003, certainly not at their first yes. meeting. I mean,
0: Yes, he's, he's saying, we really, really, really want to do a deal, and here's the excellent outcome that I think we can all agree we want to get to, and I'm going to use unnecessarily a name for it that I know is the thing most assured to mean that the people I'm going to supposedly try and do this deal with will never touch it in a thousand years.
2: And, 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 and this is where there is a really interesting sort of uh, interrelationship between the two cases, I think, because... The, the U.S. hardliners like Bolton believe that the North Koreans have only come to the table because of this maximal U.S. pressure. But the Iranian hardliners read the North Korean position as actually being a good one compared to theirs because they say, well, actually, look, North Korea is being treated with respect. It looks like they're going to get recognition, at least de facto recognition as a nuclear power, nuclear state, nuclear armed state. We, we're not getting that treatment because we don't have the nuclear leverage that they have. So where we've gone wrong is in not making that decision when we had the opportunity to develop the weapon. Yeah. And, and so they're looking at the North Korean case and saying, actually, the lesson for us is we should be in North Korea's position. And the Americans are looking at—the hardline Americans are looking at North Korea and saying, we've got you now. You're coming to the table on our terms, and you're going to give us what we want. But But what is it they they want? That's the thing. Like, if what they want is total surrender, they're not going to get it. But as you say, they don't really believe that. They can't really believe that because they know that the maximalist terms of denuclearization defined as the American term rather than North Korean definition, which is peninsula-wide at the very least denuclearization— they, they, people like Bolton know, as you say, that Kim isn't going to give them that. Right.
0: Whatever they get, what, like, the absolute like, sun beaming down from the sky, best case scenario in the Korean case, is less good than what they got from Iran and are now about to throw so the away. Fear so has
2: to be, the fear has to be that they want the summit to end in a disaster so they lend legitimise much more coercive options, including ultimately military force. And because it's very hard to see... Otherwise, why they would position it in such a way that the only successful deal is going to be one that delivers some kind of denuclearization. Because some people seem to want to argue that actually, in the end, what's going to happen is Trump's going to get in the room with Kim and he's going to accept a, because he desperately wants a deal. The president desperately wants this deal to be a great success. But all Kim's going to be offering him is a freeze On ICBM development, closing the testing sites, no nuclear testing, things that I think personally are very sensible and would be a good basis for going forward, trying to establish the beginnings of a dialogue. Um, But is that going to be enough for Trump when Bolton's saying the only good deal is Libya 2003? So Mm -hmm. I think we've got a really interesting question about how far the president is going to be able to go into this process and actually come away feeling like he's got a deal... Which, as you say, is far, would be far inferior to the deal he's got with the Iranians. If, in the end, all he gets is this is this freeze, because yeah. ultimately the North Koreans could could ramp up their nuclear capability and and move into a position where the nightmare fear that they can hold American cities hostage is kind of realised. So, I think we I think the danger is, as a number of people have said, that the only thing after a summit is a cliff, and that's that's my worry. Let's. Strip away, or a
0: gentle slope downwards. (laughs) But but let's let's not
1: complicate this metaphor. Let me try to call out the emperors or the Donald's new clothes in this case to to say really why the two cases are so very different. The first is, as you all have already hinted, North Korea didn't come to the table because of the threat of military force, including nuclear force, by Trump. If you were to look at this from the correct perspective, which is from North Korea and from the region out, North Korea halted its nuclear testing in in November and its missile testing in November because they've achieved nuclear weapons capability and they've achieved long-range missile capability, which is what they wanted walking into this. Now, at the same time, where there has been pressure is, of course, the pressure of sanctions, which were joined by the Chinese. Mm -hmm. So at this point, the North Korean game becomes... How can we get out of the box of economic sanctions, including the Chinese being involved in this, while retaining nuclear capability? And so far, they've played an absolute blinder, which is they've gotten Trump to agree to come over to meet Kim. They've given up a couple of bargaining chips, like the three American detainees that were released today. But now... They Which, s- with
0: all due respect to them and their families, is not the world's like, most structural diplomatic concession. It's,
1: yeah, given in fact, of course, that two of the three detainees were taken after Trump became president mm. to give them the chips. So what they do now is they come to the table. And in fact, they told Mike Pompeo this when he came over to get the detainees on Monday. They told him at lunch, they said, we now have nuclear capability despite the sanctions. So they point blank said it to Pompeo. Trump walks into that, there is no way that North Koreans say, we're going to denuclearize now. It's going to be more, what can you give us? Now, let me add something to the equation, which is, that's point one, how the North Koreans play Two, here's the difference between the Iran case and this case. In the Iran case, as much as I hate what the administration's done, I can see a logic to it from the hardliners. There's no logic in what they've done in North Korea. Rather, they box themselves into a corner because of Trump's desire for a photo opportunity. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I say this is this. Did you guys note that a few weeks ago, he told the Pentagon and he told his chief of staff, John Kelly, I want to withdraw U.S. forces from South Korea? Point blank said that that whole cornerstone of South Korean defense, since the Korean War in the 50s, he's willing to trade that in, in order to get his deal with Kim. Now, obviously, the Pentagon said, no way. (laughs) Kelly leaked that this had happened and said, no way. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, is that they're walking to the North Korean case, if they try to superimpose an Iranian analogy from it, not only does it not work, there's absolutely no coherence. Right. So, I,
0: the, so, so I guess, I mean, you know, perhaps <laughs> the, uh, the, the simplest answer is the best one, which is that if the approach to the two situations seems like, ill thought through and incoherent, that's because the president of the United States right now is a profoundly incoherent thinker, if thinker is quite the right word, and he is... Constructed his approach to these two issues totally differently because he's, because in iran 's in the Iran case, his lens is the deal is obama 's ergo the deal must be bad, and in the Korean case, the hypothetical prospective deal would be his deal, and therefore by definition every, anything and everything it contains would be would, would be good and he doesn 't um, he hasn 't yet thought through the the details but that takes me to the one one last question I want to put on the table before we before we wrap this up, which perhaps lessons for for U.S. diplomacy here. Because... As I said during the intro, this Iran deal was deeply controversial in the United States when it was made. Like Obama knowingly made it. Like, if, if, we, if we go back in time to when it was in the last stages of negotiation, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas is getting together, uh, some. I think it was like 47, 48 of his Senate colleagues to all put their signatures on a letter to mail it off to the Supreme Leader of Iran saying, mm. hey man, uh, don't don't go thinking that this deal that Obama's negotiating with you is uh, worth the paper it's written on because what you might not know but should is that back here in the United States, we're all really opposed to it and we have constitutional power to block international agreements. Um, And Obama uh, and and his Carter people said, um, you know, Boo boo, boo to you, Tom Cotton, for trying to undermine the president's uh, solemn stature overseas when we all know that we're not going to do a treaty, so you're not going to be able to block it because it's never going to go to the Senate in a form that means the numbers you have is capable of stopping it in its tracks. We're going to do this by a different route. We're going to go into it as an agreement of the executive branch of the United States. We're then going to roll it out using powers we already have. We will effectively dare Congress to get a veto-proof super majority together to pass some kind of law that contradicts it. But if they can't do that, then essentially we've outmaneuvered uh, Republican and Democratic critics alike. We've outmaneuvered uh, Congress to make this thing happen in spite of opposition. Now, if you like the contents of the deal and you think it's an amazing, uh, important initiative that could change the face of geopolitics in the Middle East, that's all great. But what this has revealed is that It was a very fragile foundation on which to potentially base something so important. Throughout the whole time this was being done, the domestic American political system was screaming at the Obama administration with warning signs that this whole thing could very spectacularly unravel because the support for it just was not there. And uh, once that got bound up with partisanship as well, so that people just started thinking in tribal terms that because it was obama 's deal it needed to go, add that to people who had sincere concerns about its contents, and it meant that it was a very it was, it was resting on a very thin raft indeed so you know, what we what we now have is arguably quite predictable. some people are talking it up as this is a terrible blow to the credibility of the United States because it's solemnly entered into an international agreement pledging the full truth and honor of the country. And to go back on that now uh, says irrecoverable, terrible things about the fidelity and trustworthiness of the United States. A constitutional um, uh, pedant in the United States, and I heard some of them on the National Review podcast the other day, would say that's got it completely backwards. It was wildly irresponsible for Barack Obama, knowing that he did not have a basis on which to commit the fidelity and trust and standing and status of the U.S. government to this deal to do so. All Donald Trump is doing is unraveling something that was illegitimately entered into in the first place. Because if you want to do a deal like this of this importance and have the country stand behind it when you lead office – you negotiate a treaty, you get your treaty ratified. That's what treaties are. Treaties are agreements that will outlast your administration because you've got the numbers to vote them through. Do a deal that you don't have those numbers for by a jury-rig process that is not of that nature. And don't be surprised. Don't come crying to me when it all falls apart afterwards. Barack Obama's the one to blame not anybody else for the fact that the U.S. may suffer reputational damage here. So does that mean, I guess, after that, that long tour of the issue, that we should conclude that American presidents should not be negotiating deals of this importance if they do not have the bipartisan domestic political support to back them up? Because this is what happens.
2: It's, uh, it's a great question, and, and uh, I, I think you're... Uh you're setting out the problem. There is, is is fascinating for those of us that kind of think this trustworthiness issue is is really fundamental. Um, I mean, I guess two two responses. Uh, first of all, of course, treaties can be can be unmade as well if you can get enough people to then overturn the treaty. So domestically, a treaty is not a guarantee. But nevertheless, the treaty is in a different place. And, of course, the second point, I suppose, is this is not new in American politics. I've just been thinking, as you were talking, so we can go back to Carter and SALT II. SALT II never cleared the Congress because after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, Carter knew that it would go through, at best, with killer amendments. Uh, And although, interestingly, the Reagan administration, which was very strongly opposed to SALT II in opposition did stay within the limits even despite all the talk of nuclear war fighting and so on but all the submarines were retired as agreed and so on so so there are there are examples where even when things are not ratified there is still a recognition on the part of uh, the executive branch that it's important to stay within it the second one i was thinking about was clinton and the ctbt the comprehensive test ban treaty again clinton would love to have got that through that's a major. Outstanding piece of arms control business that's been on the table now for well over 30 years uh, that people have been trying to achieve a comprehensive test ban treaty. Again, that was something where they they couldn't get it through through the Congress, and now, as you say, Obama chose not to go down the route of a treaty because he knew it would be it wouldn't make it through the domestic legislature. Yeah,
0: well, he, he wanted a deal, and he knew that no deal could be passed, so he decided that rather than live within the constraints of what his political system was telling him, right. he, would, he would come up with this end-run-around
2: But Congress. I want to just sort of make my, my last comment, really, around this theme of responsibility. Your language was, you know, was this wildly irresponsible on his part as a sort of provocation to us to, to think through this. You could say that actually, what he was being was a really responsible state leader. He he knew that if this deal was not agreed, then the situation was likely to become far far more dangerous in the region, both in terms of the risk of an Israeli unilateral attack against against Iran, which would have inevitably, I think, drawn the Americans in, uh, in terms of the concerns about. The breakout capability of the Iranian nuclear program, which you know, as this, the twenty percent enrichment, the 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 mood music before the deal, so before the first part of the deal, because of course there was the interim deal in two thousand and fourteen. if you go back to two thousand and twelve, two thousand and thirteen, there's a lot of talk about military action and options and and so on, and real concerns about Fordo, the plant that Scott was talking about, which was the jewel in their their crown and which have been i think somewhere on
0: somewhere on youtube there may be a panel including at least me and maybe some of you guys as well sitting in this building talking about the prospect of of, (laughs) of military strikes against water
2: so yes so so i think i want to turn it around and say actually obama was being responsible and this is what great leaders do they take on responsibilities where they don't where they can't always carry their domestic publics with them in terms of the legislature in terms of getting a treaty, they still Obama believed that his, that his responsibility to the wider international community and to the American people was to try to put a cap on this Iranian nuclear program before the situation got out of hand, and that 's what he achieved in doing the fact that this policy legitimacy has not deepened for this policy i mean you know uh, had Hillary been elected, obviously she was much more sceptical about the deal. It's a much more complex story there in terms of her position on the Iranians. But nevertheless, the the challenge for us is to try to think about how when you get a leader like Obama who's doing these kind of things, how do you get policy legitimacy for these in, in, a, in a democratic political system where there is inevitably these possibilities? And when you see what Trump can do, when you see this president coming in with this campaign pledge, but then actually carrying it through uh, in, in, in the current context, it's a frightening example of how, domestic, how democratic, sorry, polities can really engage in behavior that's deeply threatening to global security. And that, for me, is, is, is the big fear, particularly as these two crises uh, uh, in terms of the North Korean nuclear situation and the Iranian situation are, are interacting together. In, in a way that you know wasn't the case a few years ago. And we have a situation where the United States could find itself in a major conflict with with Iran and North Korea uh, in, in the same kind of time frame. And, that's, and as I've said a number of times during the last hour or so, I think it's a very worrying time. Hmm. Uh, we can have some hopes about what might happen with North Korea, but I think we've gone through that to say that it's unlikely that that's going to end up in a way that that, that suggests that the, that the the fundamental issue between the United States and North Korea will, will be resolved anytime soon.
0: Mm-hmm. And we should just note, um, um, I'll, I'll give you final word in a moment, Scott, but that this is arguably quite Trump-specific, that if Obama's goal was to take a thing that 50% of the country didn't like and put it in place and get it embedded and make it a fait accompli and put clear reputational and other costs in place if the United States were to withdraw from it, at least sufficient that people who didn't like it would come into office and live with it. He almost got there because you've got like James Mattis and Rex Tillerson and H.R. McMaster and all of these people who like were sitting in Donald Trump's office when this thing came up for for his you know, certification that the deal was working and like saying to him hey look none of us like this deal in the first place either uh, we share all your concerns but it is what it is it would be way worse to pull out now let's just live with it you've got to assume if it was Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or whoever it was and one of the other Republican presidents who were notionally against it too, sitting with all of those people around the table telling them that that they would have like, that their mission would then have become to find some way to say they were abiding by the spirit of their promise, but at the end of the day, basically finding a way to keep the deal in place. The the difference here is just the Trump chaos factor that like this is like on, on the one level, like there's a beautiful democratic simplicity to him, which is that like his thinking is as simple as this. I stood up on a stage many times. I said the deal was terrible, I said the deal had to go, now I'm in office, the deal is terrible, the deal has to go. Whereas everybody who's a normal politician understands that you stand up on stages and say things are terrible and you're definitely going to do X about it all the time, knowing full well that when it really comes to it, you're going to basically find a way to not do X. But because Donald Trump doesn't have the contextual knowledge, nor does he have the analytical appetite to sit down and think through like the, the reasons that were invisible to him, him, all the times he was assuming everybody agreed with him on that stage, really, that they should get rid of this thing, um, like he didn 't know that everyone was just pretending that they were going to do this. he thought like we 're all agreed right, so you can imagine why when he gets into office and suddenly it turns out this thing that everybody was saying they would do he 's being told he shouldn 't do because it 's reckless and irresponsible. he just kind of doesn 't get it and he wants to, and he wants to see it through so you know, it's uh, it's a sign of his weakness, which is that he can't appreciate, he can't like study up on issues and learn things he doesn't already know and consider uh, consequences and and analyze his way to the actually best outcome. But it is also a sign of like, how he has managed to disrupt the American political system by taking at face value uh, party p- uh, p- issue, issue position performances uh, that people have, uh, have perhaps in, in, in bad faith traded upon for, for, for some time. In that one very circumscribed regard, I would say that Donald Trump's reputation as a truth-teller is perhaps not uh, not undeserved, which is that he sometimes takes pieces of um, performative party political rhetoric and then like, truly does not understand that they are just for show and comes in and tries to do them. And that's an in- this is definitely an instance of that.
1: I think uh, three real quick lessons, sort of including but beyond Trump. I think the first is, American political culture is really badly damaged, badly damaged. Um, So is Iranian political culture, but we'll leave that for a moment. And by that, I say that uh, the ability to get through a rational agreement, which is for the good of all parties involved, such as the Iran deal, um, was jeopardized just because of this rift, this division within the American public, which runs on gut-level reactions, visceral reactions, in this case to Iran. I think... Where I differ with you, uh, Adams, is I would give Obama and the administration credit for sort of overcoming that damaged political culture to get to where they got. Because I think that I – and I thought at the time the deal will stick. I thought it was such a well-defined deal that the deal will stick despite all the sniping that was going to take place because it's very hard to undo that type of of agreement when it gets in. What I couldn't anticipate was Trump. What we couldn't anticipate was that Trump would just reignite – That damaged political culture and would be able to mobilize it, helped and assisted by people like John Bolton. But beyond that, I think just two other quick lessons to throw out to you. The second is as damaging as the American political culture was, it's this lesson, which is it's what comes next after the deal that matters. And if, to paraphrase, to rework Lyndon Johnson's, Vietnam killed off the Great Society, Syria killed off the Iran deal. That, whether from naivety, whether from indecision, whether from caution, The inability to, for example, go into Syria and either say, all right, we accept the Assad regime, we'll work with the Iranians to accept the Assad regime, or conversely, we're drawing a line with Iran on what's happening here. Mm -hmm. To do neither, which is what the Obama deal was, was to set themselves up for the fall that would take place. And the third is, looking forward, it's the illusion of American exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. And by that I mean in concrete terms, poof, climate change, deal gone, poof. Tariffs. Poof. North Korea deal. Poof. Scrap the Iran deal. And the idea that you can dictate the terms of, poof, North Korea regime change, which is what they're aiming for, Iran regime change. And they're going to come a cropper because the difference now from maybe 30 years ago when Ronald Reagan's operating is that American exceptionalism could operate in a different world where you could carry that forward. Now, even if Europe has to bow down immediately before the Americans, the Chinese don't, the Russians don't. A lot of the Middle East doesn't. And the big damage here off the Iran deal but other issues is why should we trust the Americans as a legitimate broker, let alone a legitimate leader? Why should we trust mm-hmm. them anymore? But I'll let Nick solve that one because that's his area, and I'll, uh, I'll yeah. close off with that.
0: Well, I mean, in my closing, like I was saying to our new colleague Patrick Porter just yesterday that I would, I would genuinely love to know what, like, John Bolton's proposed – like sequence timetable of events would be because on every discrete issue where you want his opinion, his opinion is that the United States should ratchet up tensions and pressure such as to have at least a 50% chance of a massive war. So if you, if that's your view of like 12 different situations, I would assume he doesn't want to have a war with all these people like North Korea and Iran and like Christ knows who else, Russia, like all at once, but I've never actually heard him say, okay, first this one, then this one, then this one. I, if he just like told John Bolton to get a blank sheet of paper and give us his like five-year plan for uh, American military conquest of the world, I would, I would love to see which comes first and whatnot. Right. But anyway... But um, it could
1: be, just because it could be like James Watt, Ronald Reagan's Interior Secretary in the 1980s, who said, hey, the timetable doesn't matter because the rapture's coming anyway. <laughs> and on that... Uh, On that quasi religious
0: note, I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much listening, you can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview, and please do. Please also subscribe to us. Please subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a rating or a comment if you are especially generous. That uh, that helps others discover the pod. Share us on social media. Tell people that you listen to us and that maybe they should think about it too. That would be a personal favor to me. You can also come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Paul Worldview, P-O-L Worldview, where you can see links to the show, etc. Our participants today have been Scott Lucas. Remind people of your uh, online locations, Scott.
1: So I'm at EA Worldview, the best little news and analysis site which covers the US and Iran amongst other topics at EAWorldview.com or on Twitter at Lucas underscore EA.
0: Nick, uh, where can people find you online if they're so inclined?
2: Please do visit our website at ICCS underscore And and follow me on Twitter, where I post a lot about these issues of trust in relation to North Korea, Iran, and other issues. And uh, if you have a chance, do please read my new book which does cover a lot of the issues that we've talked about here in relation to the Iranian case. Thank you.
0: And indeed, you can, you can find Nick telling you about the contents of that book somewhere on YouTube as well if you go, if you go looking for it. I'm, uh, I, I'm assured that it's out there and he looks, he looks natty while in the process of imparting his key arguments. I'm Adam Quinn. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. I'm AdamQuinn161 if you want to do that by number or I'm standing next to Lyndon Johnson in the photo. Also on Twitter, at AdamJamesQuinn, uh, but that's for bots and trolls, so I don't use it so much. Uh, our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. Thanks very much to the Pulse's Good Ideas Fund, as always, for their support, which we very much appreciate. We'll be back soon. We very much hope you will be, too. Bye. Bye. Bye.